Well, good morning. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. They've got some back there. I think we've even got enough this week. Um, we would need some down here toward the front if we could. And uh, um, I got a, this morning, just before we started, a, a very kind note from a, a visitor here who chides me gently because I um, at least said some things that, that seemed offensive to this visitor last week in terms of other church traditions beyond ours. Uh, more lessons down here, please, Mark. And if there's anybody else like that, I don't know that, based on reading this, that she's come back, but um, I hope she will, and uh, uh, she may. Uh, but if there's anybody else in here that I've offended by some of what I've said in terms of, of different church traditions, please um, accept my apologies. That's certainly not my intention. What my intention is to do is to try and use the experiences in my life and the studying that, that I've had the, the blessing to, to receive to try and convey to you as accurately as I can church history, not just in a historical sense, but in a sense of how it does relate to our lives today. Because this isn't ultimately a history class. This is a church class about why we are who we are and how we relate to our God and our Father and to each other. So with that in mind, this morning I want to look at the Didache, um, I tried really hard to think up an appropriate song like, Oh My Darling Clementine for Clementine, but there's just not one that really fits for Didache. So, um, sorry. <laughs> Charles and Kay Mickey are here. Did a Kay come with Charles? No. It's just Charles. Uh, that's as close as I could come. <clears throat> Question. Okay, I agree it was bad. That's why I was warming up with it. Um, what I would like to ask you is this. As you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, um, or if not, if you were to become a Christian, what was involved in the training you received as you sought to love God and to follow Him with what you did? Some people may have found it to... Okay, we've got to get off of that. There we go. Okay, hold on got to reset the timer. Yeah, we'll just jump to that screen. Um, um, and we also need to get this set. We'll get all these details worked out as we go along. Um, but uh, my question to you is, was there any kind of a... Thank you, Philip. Would you... I need the top and bottom. We've got a full PowerPoint. Was there any kind of a to-do manual that you got? Who's, who's been a Christian for less than five years? Someone raised their hand. Okay, first hand I saw is back there. When you became a Christian, did someone give you a to-do manual, a, a list of things for you to learn? No. Um, who's been a... Yes, Maria. Did anybody give you a list or a kind of a book or anything? Went to a class here at church. That's a wonderful way to do training or teaching. But there are lots of other ways to do it. You can go to Grapevine. My kids will tell me periodically, Dad, I need another devotional book because I've worn out the one I've been using and it's old and stale now and I need something new. And so we've, we've done this and we'll get our kids new devotional books or we'll get ourselves ones or, or things like that. Well, what we're going to look at today is probably the earliest Christian writing outside of the New Testament. In fact, it was probably written before the Gospel of John before the revelation of John, before the epistles of John. It's a very early writing. If we go back to the timeline we had last week, um, with Jesus being born a few years B.C., the church starting in about 30 A.D., uh, um, uh, it started 
uh, on the day of Pentecost, as we heard about from Scott this morning, which would have been 50 days, that's what Pentecost means, it's Greek, 50 days after Passover. We know Jesus continued to make appearances for 40 days after Passover, and he finally ascended 40 days. So Jesus had left the earth 10 days before the Holy Spirit came and started the church. But that's around 30 A.D. We've got Acts, and the Acts of the Apostles takes us through, in fact, Acts 2.42 that Scott read from this morning. And they continued to devote themselves to the Apostles' teaching... Do you know what the Greek word for teaching is? Didache. That literally says they continued to devote themselves to the Didache of the apostles. And was it this actual Didache that we're reading? We don't know. Was it just general usage of the word teaching? Perhaps. But at least we do know that Peter and Paul continued to preach through the, or till they died in the 60s at the hands of Nero. John's Revelation is written in 95. First Clement, we looked at last week at the end of the century, but right in this time period, somewhere in here, the Didache is written. And it's an early training manual, a how-to. So let's pose the first question. Oh, Lewis has written me a note about correction for the eagles. In your dreams, birthday boy. Um, <clears throat> That's Take It Easy by the Eagles. Thank you, Mike. Y'all were in cahoots. Speaking of pagans... <laughs> let's say you're a pagan and you're going to convert to Christianity. I tried to find a picture of pagans. I didn't go to Don Henley and Glenn Fry and the Eagles, but instead... I opted, <laughs> I'm going to get another letter, instead I, instead I opted for this wonderful couple. I would like to introduce you to the Terentiuses. Uh, he was the magistrate in Pompeii and that's his wife. They had their portrait paste on, pa painted on their house. And when Vesuvius erupted and the ashes covered their house, their portrait was in pristine condition when finally dug out uh, uh, in the last uh, 50 years or so. Uh, the Terentius says, uh, uh, he is the magistrate. He's actually holding a scroll there with a red seal. The seal shows his authority. His wife, um, and, and, uh, uh, we have excerpts that tell us this is current dress for them. That was the hairdo if you were a, 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 a Roman babe in the 70s. Um, she's holding a stylus there. It's not a big pen. It's more like the stylus you'd use with a computer or something like that with like the little uh, uh, handheld things where you use the stylus. And then this is a two-bifold uh, uh, wax tablet because that's the way they would do a lot of their writing is they would take a hard stylus, and she's kind of pensive with it, and they would use that hard stylus on a wax tablet. So we're going to go to the Terentius' house and we're going to say, what was their life like before we're going to suppose they wanted to become a Christian? And we don't know if they did or not. But what was a Roman life like at the time uh, of the early church in the, in the first century? Well, I can tell you uh, it was very different than ours in a lot of ways and yet very similar. Let me tell you some of the differences. The Romans and the Greeks also had no problem with um, certain things. Um, if a woman got pregnant, 
uh, abortion was readily accepted, and uh, uh, it was there was no problem with abortion. Uh, there was no problem with contraception to try and stop. Uh, you know, contraception did not just arise with Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, uh, when we found it a constitutional right in the United States. But, but, but uh, uh, there were contraceptive measures back in the days of, of Rome. Abortion was a right in the days of Rome. In fact, Roe versus Wade, which is the U.S. Supreme Court decision that, that says there's a constitutional right to an abortion in America, goes back and cites Roman law as some of the reason that it says we still have that today. Uh, the, the justices weren't so careful to check out some of the rest of Roman law because not only was it legal uh, for contraception and abortion, but infanticide was legal too. If you didn't like the kid once the kid was born, you were allowed to kill it without it being considered murder. Uh, not only were you allowed to kill the child, but if you didn't want to be so bold as to kill it, you were allowed to forfeit the child, which means basically you leave the child somewhere out in the open, and if someone claims it, fine, and if someone doesn't claim it, let the kid die. Okay? A um, little different world than we have. Thank the good Lord that we don't allow uh, some of that. Um, the, uh, 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 the Romans were also different in the way they reared their children. Typically, the children were not reared by the parents. They were reared by nurses. Uh, mothers did not breastfeed their own children. They had people who did it for them. The children were raised by what they called a pedagogue. A pedagogue was someone who taught the children manners and basically stayed with the child, took the child to school when this child was of school age, picked him up and brought him home, ate, with the, ate meals with the child. The child typically would eat dinner with his parents, but that's all. Um, uh, fed the child, nurtured the child, taught the child his manners and how to grow up. That's the word that Paul uses in Galatians when he says the law was your pedagogue to lead you to Christ. It's the law that taught you your manners, taught you how to behave, and took you to school. But it's Jesus Christ who was your deliverance. Okay? So the Romans would have that. When you were a girl, a Roman girl, and you uh, hit adulthood, 13, 14 years old is what the writings indicate. The girls uh, grew into womanhood at that point in time. If you were a girl, that's when you typically got married. If you were a guy, um, after puberty, you didn't get married. Okay, we're having like fits here with the PowerPoint. It's uh, not in a happy mood. Ah, there we go. If you were a guy, uh, you didn't get married after puberty. You had about 10 years to sow your wild oats. And typically, you'd live with a mistress. You would uh, spend a lot of time with prostitutes. You were sexually promiscuous. It was encouraged. It was uh, uh, just part of the life of a boy. Okay? It was also common in Roman households for men of wealth to keep young boys and have a homosexual liaison with them whenever the time dictated it. That was not only approved, that was expected in many households. So the mores, the morals, the lifestyle was radically different. I've grabbed some uh, uh, excerpts. If, this is what a man wrote his wife in a letter, if touch wood, and we, we need to say not knock on wood now. Isn't that interesting? If touch wood, you have a child, he wants a baby, let it live if it's a boy. If it's a girl, expose it. it. means don't kill it. Leave it out for someone else to take it. Sometimes they would go ahead and kill. You remember Nero, who is the Roman emperor that, that uh, persecuted the church. Paul and Peter die under Nero. 
Nero killed his mother, Agrippino. Now, he wasn't real close to her. He was closer to his pedagogue who had raised him. See? In fact, his pedagogue helped him kill his mother. But the, there was some outrage in the, the Roman citizenry when Nero did it, which I find absolutely appalling, that the outrage was expressed by the following. Somebody had a baby. They took that baby and they killed the baby and hung a sign around the baby's throat and put the baby in the middle of the Roman Senate and said, I will not raise you, this is the sign, lest you cut your mother's throat when you grow up. And that was one citizen's person of expressing the outrage that Nero would kill his mother. Isn't that bizarre? I, you trash, you killed your mother. I'll show you, I'll kill my kid. But that's the mentality. This is a pagan mentality that's being brought the gospel. The pagan mentality of life of a boy being promiscuous and rowdy. I found a better picture. <laughs> Prostitutes, mistresses, objects of men. So now, take the life of a boy that's promiscuous and rowdy and change it. Now, turn him from a pagan into a Christian. And the question is, how do you do that? What do you do? How do you take someone who grows up with this mentality and change him into a Christian? Let me give you another question. Think about the early church. These people become a Christian. Now, this is... Um, this is a fake picture. The early church did not have stained glass windows and didn't have like metal handrails that are ADA approved. Okay? But the one thing that is consistent about this is there was an outside doorway or stairwell from a courtyard that would lead to the upper room that was built over the houses. And it's in an upper room where the uh, early church would meet. If you go to Jerusalem... You can see what some consider to be the upper room. Now, where Jesus and his apostles broke bread, where the apostles stayed. We can read about it over and over in Acts as the church, early church, was forming. And this is about a 30-foot by 50-foot room. It's, um, this architecture is not real. That's Gothic. So that had to have been done in the 11, 12, 1300 era. But ideally, so people believe, the Gothic structure was built over the floor, some believe that is the original floor, of the original upper room. Now, we don't know for certain. St. Cyril of Jerusalem in 347 is who identified this and said this is, this, you know, and he wasn't doing it like, Eureka, I found it. It was like, hey, everybody knows. So it's an old tradition that this was, in fact, where the upper room was. Whether it was or not, we don't know, but we know that in a room like that is where folks would typically come to worship. And they would come into these houses, and they would come in to worship, and it would be a very different service in some ways than ours. First of all, the men would be on one side of the room, and the women would be on the other. Typically, they didn't have folding chairs or pews in the upper room. Most scholars believe the early church stood during the service. The women would be veiled. The men would not be. Somebody would read a scripture. We know from early church descriptions there would be singing, though typically the singing would be done by the men. 
not the women. So it probably wasn't all that good. Um, we know that the early church would meet around a communion table or have a communion table up at the front because they would meet to break bread and to drink uh, uh, the wine of the covenant. Um, and and, and the, the service would be in some ways like ours, but in some ways very different. If we went back, my question would be, you, you start a church, you take this pagan, how are you going to tell your church? How are you going to tell your church to behave? What are you going to tell your church to do? When we read our New Testament, we don't really have a how-to manual beyond 1 Corinthians 14. We know that it's supposed to be done in order. We know that folks, uh, one, you know, one person has a word, everybody's quiet while that person has a word. But when you want to look for a how-to book of the early church, all you're going to find is the Didache. It's a training manual. We need to remember as we look at it, while it is a how-to book, it's not Scripture. Neither God nor the early church saw fit to consider this Scripture, and it's not in our Bible. It's not a binding passage of Scripture. What it teaches, though, gives us a glimpse into how pagans were trained to be Christians. It also gives us a glimpse in how the early church was trained to conduct itself as well. So it's a very interesting book. Let's look at it. Uh, the outline that, that works, the first six chapters deal with Christian morality, right and wrong. After that, it deals with eating, baptism, not eating, and praying. Then it has rules for hospitality and testing visitors up through about the first two verses of the 13th chapter. After that, it talks about your tithes, giving your first fruits. It doesn't say money as much as it does, you know, your crops, your wool from your sheep, the first things that you've made, uh, uh, things like that, and how to offer a pure sacrifice. And then finally, it talks about the second coming of the Lord. And says, take your life seriously, because Jesus is coming. Let's look at it. First, Christian morality. The way the whole book starts out is, is basically there's a fork in the road. Um, uh, you've got a choice. The way of life or the way of death. And so, you know, as, as, as someone's being trained to be a Christian, they've got to realize that you've got choices you make. Every one of us walks the road. There is a fork in the road. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong picture. There is a fork in the road. And you've got to make a decision which way to go. Are you going to go left or are you going to go right? And the, the, the Didache says one path is the way of life, the other path is the way of death. So make your choice on which way to go. Now, I, this is important because the Didache is not just a list of here's things you do and here's things you don't do. It's just like Christianity. The teaching of the Didache is you make choices on the road because it leads somewhere. The decisions you and I make about how we live our life have ultimate conclusions. i got a friend in this class who's just pouring himself to death into his daughter right now, trying to figure out how to best make her understand decisions she makes today affect tomorrow. That's the hardest thing for me with my children. It's so hard for me to convince them, and, and I think back about it, I think it all goes back to what General Patton said. Wasn't it Patton who said, give me an army of 18-year-olds and I'll take over the world? Because there's no fear. 18-year-olds, they're not going to die. You can tell it by the way they drive. <laughs> I mean, I've, there's no fear. 
Okay? They don't, the, the human brain, I don't believe, processes all of this till you're about 21 or 22. You start realizing, this can kill you. <laughs> this is not a good thing. I don't think smoking would nearly take hold of people if nobody started till they were about 25 or 30. Because when you're 25 or 30, you think of it differently than when you're a kid. If it can get you in its addiction when you're a kid, you have a tough time breaking it. But when you're 25 or 30, you sit there and you think, let's see, I can spend money to breathe pollution that will kill me or not. I'd just as soon spend the money on hot tamales. Eat myself into diabetic coma. It's the kind of thing where, where it, it, something happens. And, and what the Didache says is we're not just giving you a list so that you can make the checklist. We're telling you there are two roads. You can choose the road of life or you can choose the road to death. So let's look at it. The Didache starts out and says on the road to life first. You want to be a Christian? You want to be trained? You want to grow in the Lord? This is what you need to know. First, love the Lord, the, the, love the God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that scriptural? Yeah. Luke 10, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Norman Rockwell painting. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Actually, I think his was like square, and this has like been rounded into a, a plate. But uh, Norman Rockwell did a painting of the golden rule. The golden rule is, do to others as you would have them do to you. Luke 6, 31, or Matthew 7, 12, I think. The Didache has the negative golden rule. It's the same rule. They just said it, negative. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. But it's the same rule. Instead of me do to Jim what Jim, I want Jim to do to me, it's me, don't do to Jim what I don't want him doing to me. But it's the same rule, right? Okay. Um, that's part of this Christian training. Uh, part of the Christian training. Let's see. Speak well of the ones speaking badly of you. I have trouble with that one. <laughs> Do I have time to confess? <laughs> I got an email. And it concerns y'all, so I'm going to tell you about it. There's this group that I will not name. Nobody knows who they are anyway. It's a mysterious front group who um, has recently put out a 20-page, very slick brochure that's being emailed and sent around. Debbie, you probably will get one since you're a politico. Uh, Patricia, you'll probably get one. Um, uh, uh, the, Patricia's not here. Sam, your mom will probably get one. Or Justin, your mom, Sam, your wife. Um, it's a shark watch. Be careful, there are sharks out there trying to devour. And one of them's me. And uh, um, <laughs> Patricia emailed me and she said, at least the lady put in good pictures of you. Um, <laughs> But uh, evidently, uh, uh, religion is something that, that uh, me and these other sharks just use to manipulate to get our political agenda because we're plotting to take over the Republican Party. 
I got a call from the San Antonio newspaper who said to me, are the trial lawyers plotting to take over the Republican Party? I said, Abraham Lincoln was a trial lawyer and he was president and had the Republican Party. We had it last decade. Why would we want it now? She said, are you trying to infiltrate the Republican Party as a, as a trial lawyer? I said, well, I was a Republican before I was a trial lawyer, so I guess technically the Republican Party is trying to infiltrate the trial lawyers. <laughs> so I emailed this woman who's sending out this scurrilous newsletter, and I said to her, I won't name her because I don't need to, but I said to her, ma'am, why do you write this about me? Why, would you like to eat lunch sometime and find out that I'm not the Antichrist before you send this out to everyone? And there's just this real strong part of me that is really trying hard to speak well of her and to pray for her in a nice way. Because it's scriptural. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, even the tax collectors are doing that. Matthew 5, 44 through 46. And this is the teaching of Jesus. It's just written down in a place outside of our New Testament in a condensed form to train the pagans. So that the pagan boys who come to faith understand that they're not supposed to be living the way they were reared to live. Or the pagan couple aren't supposed to be putting their children out to be killed. They are to treat others and speak well of others. Here's another one. If anyone should strike you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. If anyone should press you into service for one mile, go with him too. Is that scriptural? Absolutely. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, now I'm in Matthew instead of the Didache. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What the Didache does is it starts out with a general statement. Here's the way it trains. General statement. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then after the general statement, it starts giving specific commands. So that means you, you, you follow the golden rule. That means, here, general to specific, there. We put it, whoops, put an arrow there. Follow the golden rule. Speak well. Pray for your enemies. Turn the other cheek. This is what you do in chapter 1 of the Didache. Now we go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 has the don'ts. This is the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it's got all the standards. If you're looking for something to bail you out, don't go to the Didache. Because it's got, you, you, you still can't murder, you still can't lie, you still can't cheat. You still can't envy. It's got all of the other ones. You still can't lust. It's not like that got freed up or something. You can't uh, uh, envy, greed. They're all off. It even adds a few. And it makes sense. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of Jewish folks who have a good grasp of the law, right? Okay, well, when you're talking to pagan people that grew up in pagan Rome... There are a few things you need to add. You're not allowed to corrupt boys. You're not allowed to abort your child. You're not allowed to abandon your child once your child's been born. Um, it goes back corrupt boys again. It makes it real clear. You're not allowed to do that. These are the don'ts. Under the don'ts, you're not allowed to hold a grudge. 
you're not allowed to speak badly about anyone. Now, you shouldn't slander your brother. Let's say you've got a brother like Louis Miori who's going to have a birthday. When's your birthday, Louis? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. How old are you going to be? 58. 58. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say, or 48, I get those confused. Let's say that you think that your Christian brother has this thing for the eagles. You don't speak badly about it. Don't stand up in class and say, their greatest hits album could not have been the best-selling album of all time because not only Lewis, but half the rest of the class will email you the website on Monday morning. It says, he was right and you were wrong. So... If I'd done this lesson last week, I'd have known better than to even try. Our little eagles, man. Um, the don'ts. Let's see. I like the way it, the, the Didache goes into chapter 3. Because chapter 3, the, the author says, or the authors say, these don'ts are important because what you do starts in your heart. And what starts in your heart grows into other things. Listen to that. What you do really has its start, its genesis, its beginning in your heart or in your mind. And that's a road that leads somewhere. So the Didache is important. It says you, you avoid... <laughs> is that funny? That one like a beach sculpture, a uh, sand sculpture on the beach. I thought it was a pretty good picture. Avoid anger because it leads to murder. Now, we may be thinking in our day and age, no, it doesn't. Back then, murder was legal in a lot of ways. We don't kill usually by blood. Now, we do it with words. It's probably more destructive because the people get to live on with the pain forever as opposed to just offing them. But anger leads to murder or to hurt. And so avoid your anger. It says avoid lust. Do you know how hard it is to find a picture that you can put up in Sunday school for lust? That took longer than the rest of the PowerPoint put together, so we're going to stay on this picture for just a minute. Do not Google lust under images in your computer, okay? Um, I thought, if my kids look at this and the check system that we've got, they're going to see I Google lust under images. But this was why... Um, I've read the fine print. There's nothing here that's really bad, okay? But the point of the, the, the illustration is this. Lust leads you down the road. You might say, oh, no, it doesn't lead me down the road. I won't go down that road. I just like to stare down the road. No. No, no, no. Don't stare down the road. This is training. You want to be a Christian? You want to walk the road of life? You figure out how to not walk the other road. You get accountability people. You get a system. You get rid of the computer. Or you put filters on the computer. You figure out. Because this is something that's very important. It's the heart. And it's the mind. And that's where the sin starts. And so that's what it teaches. It says uh, avoid astrology. Now that's not like uh, astronomy. Astronomy is okay. It's okay to like figure out if the moon is made of cheese and things like that. It's saying don't chart your life by your horoscope. 
because that leads to idolatry. What that means is, if you think what's happening to you is dependent upon anything other than you and the Lord, you have just created a new God. And don't do it. There is only one God. So you don't need to go check your horoscope to find out how your day is going to be. You need to ask your Heavenly Father. Okay. It says, avoid theft by not kissing your dollars. The love of money leads to theft. You say, oh, okay, first of all, that's corny. Second of all, I love money, but I'm not going to steal anything. I suggest if we love money that much, we're already stealing. Because it's not our money. Whose is it? God's. And if we start loving it so much, we're probably not doing with it what God wants us to. We're treating it like it's our own. So the way to nip it in the bud, stay on the right road, is you don't start loving money. You love the things of God. And if you've got money, you use them the way you think God wants them used, wants it used. Uh, says the gentle will inherit the earth. Now, that's the translation I brought up here. I had a Didache. Okay, who stole it? Someone who loves money. Um... <laughs> I may have left it somewhere. It'll be up here with half these Bibles. Um, ah, This is um, ancient Christian writers. It's actually got uh, five different ones, including the Didache. And there are a number of versions of the Didache that you can buy. You can get them at Amazon.com. Barnes & Noble probably would have one. I'm not sure. But uh, you can get it. Um, uh, uh, and when I read this translation, it says, uh, The gentle will inherit the earth. But you know, the word for gentle is the same one translated by our Bibles as meek. The meek will inherit the earth. The gentle will inherit the earth. That's not the grumblers and the complainers. That's the gentle. It continues in chapter 4. It talks about how important hospitality is. How important it is to focus on other people. How important repentance is to the young Christian. Or to the old Christian. But it's what the young Christian needs to learn. It says, you put your hand out, but you don't put your hand out to get. You put your hand out to give. Christians shouldn't be walking around with their hand out, gimme, gimme, gimme. They should be walking around with their hand out saying, let me give, let me give, let me give. And that's not to say sometimes we don't have legitimate needs. We do. And there is a time for in relationships where those need to be expressed. And I, I want to be real careful here because a number of you have come to me and said, hey, I need help sometime. And, and sometimes we're able to help and sometimes we're not able to help. But there's nothing wrong with expressing a need for help. But you've got to keep in your brain also a recognition that as Christians, what we're really called to do is to give ultimately. So if someone needs your help and you're in a position to help them, you're responsible to do it. But you find, even if it's not financially, even if it's just in time, even if it's just in prayer, even if it's something nobody knows you do, find ways to give to others and to help. Because that needs to be our attitude. Chapter 5 talks about the road to death. Um, the road to death, it gives 22 categories and traits of, of things that lead to death. We know most of them. Uh, uh, they're not anything unusual there. It's the standards don'ts are re-emphasized. And the point that the, the Didache makes is those aren't just 
Those aren't just no's because God is a grandfatherly type with a beard who sat up in heaven in a rickety rocking chair, rocking back and forth, thinking, all right, I've made all these people, now how am I going to have some fun with them? What am I going to do? Well, I think I'll let them do these things over here, but I ain't going to let them do that. That one's just a little too much fun. That's going to be a no. I don't like that. I'm going to make that one a no. The no's are not arbitrary things God just put in a list to see how difficult He could make life. They're not just arbitrary rules of the game so that we know if we do that, we go to jail and do not pass go and don't collect $200. As bizarre as it may seem, God made us in His image to be like Him in our morality. And the things that are no's are no's because they're very destructive to us and they're not good for us and they don't help us. And so God says stay away from the no's because the road leads to death. That's why. That's not a good road to be on. Chapter 7 talks about baptism. And it's interesting what it says. Very interesting. Early church perspective on baptism. Outside of the Bible, granted. Very interesting. First of all, it says, before you baptize them, make sure they know chapters 1 through 6. Okay? You've got to train them before they get baptized. Make sure they know, you know, don't go baptizing and letting into the Christian circle someone who's going to walk and be a pagan. Because that person's not really putting their faith in Jesus. Explain to them what this is all about and what the life is like and what, what God's called us to. And then when you baptize them, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triangle is an old symbol for the Trinity. It's one. It's, it's one. The triangle is one object, but it's uh, three sides to one object. And so it's, an, it's one of the early church symbols for, I say early, mid-church symbols of the, the Trinity. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Then it says, when you're baptizing, you need to do it in running water, live water, like a creek or a lake. Because you see, live water symbolizes the life that we're baptized into. So you're supposed to have running water. Now it says... Sometimes that's not available. Sometimes you've got to use a, a baptistry, or the, the Jews had what they called a mikvah, which is a, their baptistry. And that's okay. But if you're going to use a swimming pool or a baptistry or something like that, try to keep the water cold. So at least people will be thinking, ooh, this is like the outside. <laughs> now, if you can't keep it cold, it's okay to be warm. But this is the ascending order of priorities. Lewis was baptizing on, you were Lou the Baptist what day? It was uh, Christmas or right around Christmas? New Year's. Year's. And Michelle came up to me before he started and she said, Lewis is doing the baptizing and the heater went off. The water is really cold. And I thought, I wish I had known. I would have gone home and found a bag of ice cubes and had them floating right there for him to wade through on the way to do it. Just to get him going. But... Fortunately for him, I did it, and for y'all, because I probably would have been kicked out of the church. But Lewis, Lewis baptized in cold water, and he knew the difference. 
So it's interesting to see the way the early church taught this. Now, the early church also taught, today we live with water. I mean, we all have water. There's water just about everywhere. But in the early church, that was not true. There were a lot of places where you did not have extensive water. And so it says, worse comes to worse, and you don't have enough water to immerse someone, then you can pour. But when you pour, pour three times. Once in the name of the Father, once in the name of the Son, once in the holy name of the Holy Spirit. And don't pour unless there's just not enough water to immerse. Immersion's the, the, the preference there. Another thing about baptism. Before you baptize, you're supposed to, Whoops. You're supposed to fast. Not only the one who's getting baptized, but the one who's doing the baptism. And it's preferable if the whole congregation will fast too. Because people need to concentrate on what's going on. What this is, is not just a, a slipshot decision. This is something for real. This is a life change. This is the Roman boy or the Roman girl or the Roman couple saying, we're going to leave our family and all of the gods and traditions that there are. And we're coming into a brand new family. And we have a brand new birth. And we have a brand new moral code. And we have a brand new way to live. And we eat with our new family. And we worship with our new family. And we will be cut off from our old family. It was a very serious decision that took a lot. Now, chapter 8. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Here's the way it's written in the Didache. Our Father. Now this is the way the translation I'm reading reads. The one in heaven. Your name be made holy. Your kingdom come, your will be born upon earth as in heaven. Give us this day our bread that's coming, and forgive us our debt as we likewise forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into the trial, but deliver us from evil, because yours is the power and the glory forever. But you know, when you take the Greek and read the Greek, it reads almost word for word the same as our Lord's Prayer. It's just this is one guy's translation, I guess, to make it read a little niftier. But it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done upon earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread that is coming, our daily bread. And forgive us our debt or trespasses, as we likewise forgive those who trespass against us or our debtors. Do not lead us into the trial. That's the word temptation. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because thine is the kingdom, doesn't say kingdom, power and the glory forever. Kingdom is missing. It does say you're supposed to pray that three times a day. Jews would say their Shema twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. And then they'd have a thir- another prayer for the third prayer for the day. Christians were taught, I mean the pagan Roman kid doesn't know what to do this. He's taught you pray this three times a day. If he gets Paul's letter one day, he'll know to pray without ceasing. He'll know everything he does needs to be in prayer with God. But for that early Christian training, they need to be thinking three times a day. You pray this. Communion, chapter 9. It's closed. Nobody gets in communion unless they are baptized believers. Um, uh, The church is very exclusive about it. There are prayers set out for the communion service uh, that are in there that you can read about as well. Hospitality and Christ peddlers. Um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, if someone comes to you and claims to be a preacher and a teacher and they stay with you for three days, that's fine. If they want to stay longer, make them start working. And if when they're leaving, you should give them food till they can get to their next stop. But if they ask you for money, they're Christ peddlers. 
Don't give them anything. They're false. At his departure, he must receive nothing except food to last till the next night's lodging. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. I wonder what they would do with much of what's called Christian TV. You give your first fruits to your preacher or to your pastor or to your bishop or to the leader of your church, your teacher. If you've got a church that doesn't have a leader or a teacher, you give your first fruits to the poor people in your community. Either way, you give them because they're the Lord's. You gather together on the Lord's day to break bread. But before you break bread, first you confess your sins and second you reconcile if you've got problems with other people in your midst and in your family. Appoint bishops and deacons to head up your church. And most importantly, be ready. Because you don't know, this is, this is a direct quote, be ready. You know not the hour in which the Lord is coming. Jesus will return. We don't know the hour, the day, the year, the decade, the millennium. But he's coming and our responsibility is to be ready. Next week we're going to start looking at some of the early church martyrs. We'll be passing the 100 mark. Um, but for now, here are your points for home. Number one, salvation's a real turning point in life. It's not just something that just kind of happens along life's way. It's a change in direction on the road. Number two, morality and living is worth our best teaching and our best efforts because it changes who we are and it changes how our lives turn out. Number three, God's law starts in the heart. It's not just a cold to-do list. Number four, Christ is coming again. Get ready and stay ready. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray your blessings on this class. I pray your blessings on our fellowship. I pray your blessings on our church. I ask your, your, your hand in guiding this class as we continue to teach and unfold the way you have worked through history to bring your children uh, into regular communion with you and then to bring them home with you in the day of glory. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.